Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. My guest today is Steph Clark. Steph is an accountant turned facilitator and team coach. Welcome, Steph. Hi, Mel. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks very much for joining me. So my first question is, what does connection mean to you? I was thinking about this when you sent me the questions or some ideas for questions or topics to talk about. It's one of these ones that's really hard to answer without actually using the word connection, which is really annoying. So thanks, Mel. <laughs> I think to me, connection is it's a relationship. And it, you know, there's a whole spectrum there between how good that relationship or that connection is. But it is about a relationship and something that is two way between two people or multiple people. So for me, that was the simplest term I could kind of come up with. I like that. Thank you. I'm sure we'll get back into that as we continue. Recently, you moved to Australia from the UK. Why did you do that? And do you have any advice for people thinking about moving city or country from a connection perspective? Really good question. And you're going to laugh being that you're in Brisbane, but I moved for the weather. Um, And given that I'm in (laughs) Melbourne and you're in Brisbane, exactly, you're going to find that hilarious. But As I keep saying to Australians and particularly those from up the coast, it's all very relative. So Melbourne is considerably better weather than uh, where I'm originally from. So I always joke that the weather is why we moved. But really, my boyfriend and I, we've been together nearly eight years. And really early on in our relationship, we both said that we wanted to live and work overseas. And we had a first past the post move on whoever got a job first in wherever that was, was where we moved. And Australia was top of my list and second on his list to Canada. So we had some pretty good options of places to go. And I won, which is the important thing for everyone to know. (laughs) I I won. And so we moved. uh, I moved with my last job. And in terms of tips, it's a a really good question because it is pretty daunting. And one of the things I realized that whilst I moved with within an organization, so I knew the processes, the systems, the courses I was teaching, all the rest, you forget how much you rely on the network you have around you. And even just from the people you sit next to every day and knowing where the coffee machine is and just that kind of stuff, the logistics. So from a connection perspective, one of the things that I found hugely helpful was my friend Narelle. I contacted her because I knew she was going to be in my the team I joined. And I just sent her a heap of questions beforehand. So whatever you can do beforehand, particularly if you're in the lucky position where you know where you're going to work, you've got a job lined up in another city, another country, even a new organization, I think sometimes that's just as scary as moving and just as big as moving to another country because you do lose that that immediate connection with those around you. Yeah, you do. So I think it's really around finding out who you can speak to first, find some early ins to, to different people and making the most of that. The other thing I'd just quickly add is be really intentional about what who you want to be and what you want to get from that next experience, whether you're seeing that as a short-term thing, a long-term thing, it's a big career move, it's a career pivot, to use Jenny Blake's term, whatever that is, but be really intentional about who you want to be, what you want to be known for, and why you're doing the move, because there's probably a reason. So what was your reason? Weather. I mean... <laughs> probably you didn't go to Canada then. No, I know. Well, they did get quite warm in the summer, but yes, uh, Dave is definitely more of the cold person than I am. But no, the jokes aside on the weather, the for me, it was really the experience. I didn't, in some ways, didn't really know what it was I wanted from it, but I knew I wanted a different experience. And I knew that 
working in the Australian market because there's some people, actually a couple of people had moved back to the UK team I was working in from Sydney actually and Melbourne. So I got to talk to them and say, you know, what was the what was the market like? What were the what was the work like? And I knew that given the nature of the team and the type of work, even though it was similar work in Australia, was going to give me much more breadth of experience. So from a career perspective, that's what I wanted to go for. And I was right. And it was something I was able to make the most of and really get my teeth into lots of different things I wouldn't have had the exposure to if I'd stayed in the team in the UK. Do you think you'd go back to the UK to live? No, I go back every year to visit and to remind myself why I don't live there. (laughs) It's funny. My father was English and he left England when he was probably in his mid to late 20s. So he went to Canada and he met my mother in Canada and she was Australian and she'd gone travelling and he'd been there for a while and they moved to Australia probably a few years after they married. And um, he used to always say, I would never go back to live in the UK. And he went back every year to visit his parents as well and to visit friends. But he said, I just love Australia so much. I can't imagine ever living in the UK again. And he said when he left in his 20s, he knew then that he would never return. I'm fairly sure he didn't tell his parents that, but um, he was pretty confident that the world was a better place elsewhere for him. Yeah, absolutely. And and when we moved, we knew it was a long-term move. And not to say that we would always live in Australia. I mean, that's definitely where we see ourselves over the next sort of medium term at least. But And I would like to do some stints, particularly in Asia. I think that would be really interesting. And again, from a work and personal experience, I'd love to, to spend a few months or even up to a year probably in Asia and working in a different market that is completely different. So it's not necessarily Australia forever, but certainly not back to the UK. And I think today there's so many opportunities to live and travel elsewhere. I moved to Brisbane for similar reasons to you. I moved from Sydney and just needed to get out of Sydney. I just found it expensive. I found it a hard city to meet people and to become connected and to feel like I was a part of a tribe. When I moved to Brisbane, there was no social media. I had one friend here and I had two other really good friends who used to live here who said I would love it. And I had an aunt who lived here as well, who I wasn't particularly close to, but who was incredibly supportive and welcoming when I did first move here. And it was weird. As soon as I drove across the Queensland border, I felt like I'd come home and I'd barely ever even been to Brisbane before. So it was really such an unsettling, strange, but exciting feeling. And I've never regretted it. But like you, there's other places I'd love to live, but I can't imagine not having a home base in Brisbane. It's funny, isn't it, that if we're talking about connection, that connection we find with different places and even places we've not been before, but we can, we arrive somewhere and we just feel like it's home or it's where we belong or it's got this, certainly not a woo-woo or that kind of way inclined, but it's got that kind of tie or pull to us. And a former accountant who's not woo-woo, I don't get that. (laughs) I know, it's weird, isn't it? It's like those two things normally just go together. (laughs) How did you go from being an accountant to a facilitator and a team coach? Well, anyone hopefully who's ever been an accountant will realise why I'm not an accountant anymore. (laughs) Sometimes in workshops, and I have to pick my audience for this one, especially if I'm talking to accountants or finance people. But I often say I'm a recovering accountant, which usually uh, for anyone in that particular industry gets, uh, gets a few laughs and nods. But for me, it was quite early on in my accounting career. So I actually started in as an auditor when I was 18. So it's pretty much child labor, I'm sure. But started in audit when I was 18 for one of the big four 
professional services firm. So this was, it was quite a big move. And I was day one, we we're out at clients, 18 years old, talking to financial controllers <clears throat> who were in their 50s, 60s, who'd been doing this for their whole professional lives and asking them questions about why they're recognizing their revenue in that way, which was fairly, when I think back on it, it was fairly full on. But quite early into that process and into that training contract that I was in, probably after about a year, 18 months, realized that I love the people I worked with and that's why I kept doing it for longer than I probably had planned to. But the work didn't really excite me. But what I loved was asking the clients questions. I loved being client facing. I loved understanding the problems, the the challenges they faced and what was going on in the business. And I really loved then passing that on. So what I used to do was I'd run as soon as there was people coming up the ranks below me, for want of a better word, who are more junior, so interns, etc. I was running little training courses for them, developing materials, teaching them how to do a stock take and what to do when you go out to a warehouse on Christmas on New Year's Eve, which it, they typically were when it was zero degrees and there's no heating in the warehouse, what to do and the practicalities of that. And I really enjoyed that. That was the thing I really enjoyed. And I was terrible at it to start with, of course, but realized quite quickly as well that there were career options available in that. So they put us through really great training. And every year you'd go off to a couple of one or two training courses nationally where they'd bring people together from around the UK and Ireland and and Scotland. And we'd have training courses together. And the training was run by other auditors who were just more more experienced. So when I saw that for the one of the first times, I thought that is what I want to be doing. I want to be on that side of the clicker. So I quite quickly applied into the learning development team. They told me I probably needed a bit more experience than 18 months, which was very fair enough. So I, that's when I started to take things into my own hands, run a few things in my local office. And over the next two years, built up to being able to go and train in the, on the national courses, did a secondment into learning and development, and then basically never left and hoped nobody would notice when <laughs> I didn't go back to the audit <laughs> at the end of that 18 months. I was like, no, no, I'm just going to stay here, thanks. So that was it. And But that was a huge move. And I remember the moment, because I did both roles for about two years, the bit of audit and a bit of learning. And having grown up and done this huge training course and got my qualification as an accountant and really had that as a big part of my identity, especially from doing it from such a young age, it was a huge move to then almost cut that and say, actually, all that three and a half, four years of really hard work to get the qualification and six, seven years of experience doing that work. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. And there was a huge amount of identity and connection with that. And, you know, a number of people I worked with did challenge that and say, well, you know, what are you doing? You're kind of throwing a career away and you're not going to get anywhere going into HR because that's, you know, for some people that was very much a second class citizen in that part of the part of the company. But I decided that was what I was going to do. And I was going to get a lot more joy out of my days and my life by pursuing that as a career. I think it's turned out okay so far. And I think at the end of the day, we need to be doing what gives us joy because we spend a lot of time at work. And if you don't love what you do or who you do it for, then what's the point? Absolutely. That's always been my philosophy. And I know a lot of people don't agree with me. I've had a couple of conversations with people who like to think they're friends, but given that we philosophically disagree on big things like this, <laughs> I sometimes question that. But, you know, some of my friends are like, well, it's all about the money. And I think, yeah, but you're unhappy, you're miserable, you work these big jobs to earn more and more and more money to create a lifestyle that you are beginning to feel trapped in. It's really challenging, isn't it? 
It is. And I think my husband's an accountant. He's a former accountant as well. And he made a decision a few years ago that he didn't want to be an accountant anymore because it was just stressing him out ridiculously. He worked for a few people who wanted him to do illegal or highly unethical things with money. And he that just went against every principle he ever had. And so he's now working as a delivery driver for a supermarket and is happier than he's ever been. And yeah, he's earning a fraction of how much he used to, but what price do you put on your happiness? It's a really good question, isn't it? And I really like those kind of stories. And I'm not one so again, you'll probably be unsurprised. I'm not really a big fan of this whole follow your passion and all this kind of nonsense in my mind. I definitely agree with more, I suppose, the Cal Newport's approach of do be so good they can't ignore you. Actually follow what you're good at, find your skills, find your strengths and use those and use them for good, hopefully not for evil, but use them in a way that that is going to bring you the joy is the mastery. And I'm definitely in that that category of people who find joy in getting better at something, improving, being able to bring that to other people, et cetera, and, and use that in a really productive way. But I think it's about you've got to have the awareness to be able to do that. And you've got to have the awareness at what point whatever you're doing isn't working for you, maybe isn't playing to your strengths, whatever it is, or you're just not, you're just festering. And I think when I looked at the career paths available, there is, and a lot of my good friends are still in that kind of industry and and have chosen the career paths through to partnership, et cetera, in, in those kind of firms, which is fantastic because for them, that is their strength and they enjoy it and they see purpose and meaning in what they're doing. For me, that wasn't the case. And it wasn't actually something I wanted to get great at. I mean, I was fine. I was I was fairly you know, average as, as an accountant. I did pretty well, but I knew I could be better at something else. Yeah. And the whole don't follow your passion, I could not agree more with you on that. Years in, when I was in high school and at uni, my passion was music and I wasn't good enough to be a professional musician. And it took a while before I worked in that industry. And, but I remember my first job in the arts was as the manager for a big performing arts festival. And it just gave me a whole different perspective on what that industry was like. And I didn't like it. So after that contract finished, I've never gone back to work in the arts or in the music industry because it really took a lot of the shine off my passion for that. Once I saw how unpleasant some people were and what the reality was. And it took a long time for me to build that passion back up again. And it certainly it's never gone back to how it was before I worked in that space. And I remember when my stepson was looking at career options, he's an exceptionally talented golfer and wanted to become a golf pro, but that's also his passion. And I said to him, think really carefully about what you choose to do, because if you work in the area that's your passion, you will lose that passion for it as it becomes day-to-day and often mundane and a job. And thankfully, he heeded that advice because now he plays golf to de-stress and to relax and from a mindfulness perspective, and he studies something else. And I think we just need to be so careful about telling our children and the other people in our world to follow your passion because you could lose everything you love if you do that. You're absolutely right. And I know I've got friends who are in similar situations who did either as their initial career or certainly later on and had, again, a bit of a pivot or a bit of a side business or side hustle in those areas that were their passion or that were their hobbies, let's say. And they quite quickly realized they stopped doing it for themselves and it took away, they stopped loving the art or the creativity or whatever it was anymore because it became work. And there's that whole thing around 
some people love the idea of the outcome of their passion. So being a superstar personal trainer to the stars or being a musician or whatever it is, but actually the process of getting there is incredibly hard to get to that kind of level that most people aspire to or dream of. You've got to fall in love with the process. And that is the continuous learning, the failing, the setbacks, all the rest, and it being the day-to-day grind. Exactly. And I think it's the day-to-day grind that we often forget about when we are chasing a dream or following our passion. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I was reading your website and you said you've got qualifications in Lego and serious play. (laughs) What is that? That just sounds amazing. And how can I do that? Yeah. So Lego serious play is something I use as a facilitation tool. It is a well-known model. It came out of various Oh, actually, I don't know where it came out with, so I'm going to cut that bit out before I misquote someone. <laughs> but it's been used around the world and, and some of the science behind it in terms of when they've used it to see how people respond when they're doing something more kinesthetic. So I use it as a facilitator to help people get a little bit deeper. And again, not necessarily into personal trauma or what happened to you know, that conversation they had there with their mum with their mum when they were five, but just a bit deeper into what's really going on in their team, in their organization, etc. So what I've used it for previously is particularly when asking a team what would good look like and getting them to build it. And the amount of times when I've used it and in that kind of way, or particularly when actually I'm undercovering a challenge, something that people are struggling to talk about, maybe it's the elephant in the room, getting them to build it. What's not working in this team at the moment? What's the challenge with our client experience or client service? What I've had almost every session is someone say to me, this is exactly how I feel, but I never knew how to describe it. I never knew how to say it. If you'd asked me this question, I wouldn't have said this, but this image you know, in terms of the actual Lego that they built exactly describes it, which is so powerful. I like that. Yeah, it's so powerful and so cool as a facilitator to actually unlock that next level of understanding and particularly between team members as well. The other cool thing about it is it's all based on metaphor. So the different blocks you can use as something quite metaphorical. So, for example, another facilitator I know who uses this a lot in his business had something with the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, and they were describing some of the challenges. And obviously, they're dealing with huge social, political issues. And this, they were, the model was describing the challenges at the moment. And this person built their model. And by build, these things aren't spaceships and rockets, etc. They're sometimes they're really simple. And, and this person built mm. three people, just three little Lego people, and then one black brick in the middle. I said, okay, describe your model. And she said, this person here is the government. This person here is the community, more society at large. This person here is an asylum seeker. This black brick in the middle represents fear. This is the thing that connects them all. That just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) That's such a simple activity to get such a massive message Mm. out, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's so powerful because and I've seen, you know, that was obviously a really monumental example, but I've seen so many different things with teams exploring things that they haven't discussed yet. And also just seeing similarities and differences in a different way of going, Oh right, that's how you're perceiving that problem. All the colours, all the shapes, all the dysfunction, all the chaos in your model, whereas other people have built something that's quite structured and stayed and steadfast, etc. It's a really good one as well to get people talking about where are they at the moment? You know, how are they feeling? What's going on for them? I love how you use Lego as a way of connecting people as well, because 
every one of those models would have had to have been explained, I would imagine, unless it was so self-explanatory in looking at it. But even I find when it's most self-explanatory, you still don't get all the nuance. No, sometimes the simplest models are actually the ones that are the most profound in many ways, because there's such simple metaphor and, and use of the different animals and bricks etc that those are the ones that need explaining there's often I do sometimes it depends again yeah all of this is a tool I don't use it in every workshop I don't use it for everything it's not you know, otherwise you end up with the hammer and nail analogy but one of the things I've seen and done a couple of times is getting people to build a model and particularly when it's a shared experience or a shared problem that everyone's trying to solve in a team so I'll get them all to build a model about their perception of it or what's working well or what's not working or something along those lines what I'll then ask everyone to do is moving one space to the left or to the right and then to describe each other's model. And what's really interesting is to see how different people interpret exactly the same model, but in a very different way. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to remember that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to shift gears a little bit. You went to see Brene Brown last week in Melbourne and I had such massive FOMO and that was the only thing that was in my Facebook feed for the two days that she was in Melbourne and Sydney last week. Was it as amazing as it looked? It was. It was really interesting. I had coffee with a friend yesterday who asked me, was it good return on investment? And I had to say no, <laughs> but ah. at the same time. So it's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that because I was still in the, I suppose, the, the post-event buzz of that was really great. It was amazing to hear her and see her. And then I just need to stop going for coffee with this person. Clearly they're a massive buzzkill. But <laughs> How would you have defined return on investment? And that was a really, exactly, that was actually where we ended up having the conversation was around what would it needed to have done or been or for it to be different and for it to have been that different return on investment because these things you know being shy about that they're not cheap things to go to those those kind of speakers so it was interesting so for me having read the book and having looked into the work and used some of the worksheets and things I had a you know, relatively good understanding of the models etc and the the messages there was nothing else in the talk that wasn't in the book. Obviously, fantastic to see her and she's incredibly engaging. I'm still pleased I went in terms of making it ROI or whatever. And this is clearly the accountant brain still is still in there. You, can't, you can get you get rid of your qualification, but you can't get rid of the accounting brain. When you own a business, when you pay for it out of your own pocket, you need to think in that way. Oh, absolutely. Like I, I think about everything I do in what will be the return. There'll either have to be a financial return in terms of meeting new clients and getting business, or there'll need to be an emotional return or a physical return. And sometimes the warm and fuzzies and motivation is enough of a return. Mm but sometimes it's not. Yeah. And I think for this one, for me, and particularly, again, as a facilitator, as someone who uses these kinds of ideas, not necessarily verbatim, but certainly uses and recommends the some of the worksheets and her material, for me, it would have been probably more and different case studies in more depth, maybe even a smaller audience or whatever. But, you know, that's a, you know, when you're coming from the other side of the world and only doing two dates, you kind of, your numbers are you're going to be your numbers. But then being able to dig a bit deeper, into more than just necessarily the messages and the framework, but actually getting into how they've used it and how they've applied it in a bit more depth than just we had this one conversation and this person had a big aha epiphany. But actually, well, what were the questions you asked? How did you get there? What was the facilitation, I suppose, of that to get to that point? Not quite, yes, yeah, it's almost the playbook, but not quite. And I know that then obviously there is the facilitator training you can go on as well in the US with with Brene to to get into that level of depth. But I think for me, that would have been 
that extra bit that I would have found really valuable. Obviously, would that have appealed to the mass, you know, couple of thousand people who are in the conference centre? Maybe not. But that's the balance and the dance, isn't it, with those kind of events? Yeah, it is. And I find it really interesting. I listen to a lot of speakers and a lot of podcasts with people who have written books. And I find it really frustrating when you've read the book that they've written and then you go and listen to them and every story is in the book. Every analogy is in the book. Every example is in the book. So one of the things that I personally try and do whenever I speak is to give examples and to give analogies that are not in my book so that if people have read my book, they'll still get something new and they'll still have something fresh because I don't spend hundreds of dollars to listen to some great person speak just to have a rehash of what was in their book. You're absolutely right. And again, that was exactly that. So all of the examples, there was a couple of little anecdotes more around her and her husband of some conversations they'd had quite recently, which were pretty funny and and good. But in terms of the actual material examples or case studies, they were all from the book, which was interesting because when I went to see Amy Cuddy, probably 18 months, maybe even two years ago now with Business Chicks, and that was was really good. And I think the, the difference there was her book had only just come out. So everything you were hearing, unless you had some kind of previous copy or you'd re- read it literally in the last week. So that's timing more than anything was was new because it was new ideas. And obviously it was a brand new book. Now, the stuff probably is or was in the book, but the timing of it just worked better. So this was more of the introduction. Then you got a deeper dive through the book. Yeah, interesting. So you have a podcast about books which I love. And I saw you say somewhere that your podcast episode where you reviewed Brene Brown's book is your most listened to and downloaded. Which of your books that you've reviewed so far has been your favourite? Probably two that I really struggle to decide which one's my favourite. It would depend on the need, obviously, but Atomic Habits by James Clear, absolute favourite from last year, just so practical, so well written. I love his work and I love his thinking of his work as well. I think that's that's really important. So that's really around habit building and how to build really sustainable, solid habits. And this is not about 21 days and all of that rubbish, because as he talks about in the book, and as many people probably know, 21 days is actually a horrible misquote of a study that was done. But it is about building the environment and and really the mindset of building a sustainable habit and focusing on your trajectory and where you're heading rather than necessarily what the goal is. Yeah, that's one of my favourite books as well. So good. I love James's work. The other one is The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, which just blew me away. And I probably read that, it might have been end of of 2017, maybe that came out early 2018, around that sort of time. And I've had so many copies that I've given away and lent out and talked about it and all the rest and just wax lyrical because particularly as a facilitator, but I think this is something that actually everyone, every human who is connecting, this is very relevant for this podcast as well. Every human who is bringing people together, whether that is Sunday lunch with your friends or family, whether it is a wedding, a funeral, uh, whatever you're doing, read this book because it will fundamentally challenge and question the way you are bringing people together and what you are and aren't connecting over and really just getting back to that purpose. I think in a lot of different, particularly more traditional gatherings, so thinking your weddings, your funerals, your all of those kind of things, a lot of people have lost the point <laughs> of what they're about. And I'm not particularly a massive fan of weddings or matrimony or those kind of things, but at the same time, I think that the purpose has somewhat been lost in the glitz and the glamour and the the fluff. 
Oh, I have to have a look for that one. You're the second person to mention that book to me in the last couple of weeks, which I'm taking as a sign that I need to read it. (laughs) And even as a facilitator, so, you know, putting aside the personal things that everyone can take from the book, as a facilitator, there's loads of great examples. So Priya's got a fascinating background as a, a mediator and doing some incredible work with incredibly difficult groups to bring together both politically, socially, et cetera. And the way she has facilitated those gatherings and thought about each process, even everything from the invite through to the wrap up and thinking about where everything goes so that, again, it has a purpose and it all flows. And not just from a does it all fit into the day like this is way beyond that. This is thinking, how are you making people feel safe? How are we introducing it so it sets up the sets the right tone all of those different things where do you put the logistics conversation around oh parking make sure you get your parking validated and all that kind of rubbish that you have to do as a facilitator sometimes so that it doesn't detract from the real purpose and the meaning of of the meeting of the day and that can be anything from a 45 minute team meeting through to a three-day leadership retreat yeah I like that and it often is the little things that trip you up absolutely as well as a facilitator I um was at a, a client's workplace earlier in the year and had been there many times in the past but not for quite a few years and parking had never been a problem and I drove in this particular morning and they said have you booked a parking space and I said well no didn't my client do that for me and they said no and we're full and I just said oh well now where do I park and they said oh you can drive in and into the loading area and unpack all your stuff and then you'll have to move your car somewhere else And the woman was really officious and not very nice about it. Then I walked in and spoke to a man who said, and said, I don't know what to do with my car. Where should I move it? Because I don't really know this area. And there's limited street parking and it's all full from all the workers in your building. And he said, oh, look, don't worry, just leave it there. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes, that's fine. And I thought, okay, well, that's (laughs) a lovely solution to what would have been horrible, but it really put me on the wrong foot Mm. for the first hour of my facilitation. And yeah, it was. I was quite shocked when I thought back afterwards. I was quite shocked as to how much that threw me off. And so I think that preparation is something that's critical. And that threw you off as a facilitator, which obviously is, is a problem. But imagine if that had happened to every single person who was walking in the room or even half the group that were walking into the room. Oh, I know. And nearly pretty much everybody else in the group caught a taxi or an Uber to get there because they weren't from Brisbane. And I just thought, Thank goodness it was only me who this happened to this morning. Yeah. What's your podcast called? Steph's Business Bookshelf. Great. I'll pop a link in the show notes for anybody who would like to follow along and subscribe to her podcast. It's excellent. So we're just going to wrap up with a couple of quick more questions. Is there any other podcast or book or resource that's really impacted you either personally or professionally or both? In terms of podcasts, I come back to, and I go through phases as most people do, you kind of binge on one of them and then move on to another and then come back to them. But the one I've consistently got huge value from is Tim Ferriss. And I know it's kind of cliche, but I just, I really love the way he interviews. I always get so much from the interviews and I like, personally, I quite like the long form, you know, hour and a half, two hour marathons that he does, because I just think the level of depth they get to is is next level and you don't always, and I find as well with the Tim's podcast, even if I've heard that same author or person speaking on other podcasts the ones with Tim that you get a bit of the surface stuff like how did you write you know why did you write the book etc etc but you just get next level around how they got to where they're doing what challenges they've had and just you never know what you're going to get but you know it's going to be great so 
that would definitely be one of them. I've listened to a few of his podcasts episodes and I just think that they need a good edit. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're too long? Just a little bit rambly. And I also felt the same about his book that it, like a couple of his books I've read, I just think they need a really good edit because they are too long for me. Like I like podcasts that I can listen to completely during a walk and I listen on one and a half speed. So they can be a little bit longer, but I just find them a bit all over the place sometimes, not every guest, but sometimes. You're right. And I think it does depend on the guest as well. Similarly, I'm not a huge fan of his books. I like the idea, I like the concept of them, but I find them a bit hard to read. But that said, I Mm. do like the interviews. And again, I like to listen to them on a walk, but Sometimes I walk. Sometimes I walk to an hour into the city and then an hour back. So there we go. I can listen to one of Tim's in, in in a day. In terms of books, probably actually the art of gathering again. It's one that I just keep coming back to the the, the key concepts of, which has been really phenomenal over the last 18 months and something I'd love to it really inspired me as a professional around the difference I want to make and the impact I want to make and and could make as a facilitator with groups which again is is really aspirational stuff the other and I know this this would be up your street as well but also on books I'd like to throw in a couple of cookbooks so any basically anything by Ottolenghi (laughs) (laughs) in terms of (laughs) one of the things I love to do is I love to cook I'm part of a cookbook club we've been going for nearly a bit over three years nearly three and a half years actually every month we meet up and we all cook from a different cookbook we bring the dishes with us and it's a great way of just connecting and I love to connect over food it's one of my favorite things is to host dinner and lunch etc and cook and the Ottolenghi books, and just his writing and just his style just make me very happy. So much love there. I love him as well. And he has a podcast now. Did you know that? Yes, I haven't actually listened to it yet, but I've heard him. I listened to him on other podcasts, but I haven't listened to his yet. Yeah, I just love him and saw him when he was in Brisbane earlier in the year, and it was just fantastic. Mm. So what are you making tonight for dinner? Tonight is because I'm teaching spin again this evening, so I need to – tonight is quick dinner, so tonight is just soup – that I made yesterday but then tomorrow is a butternut squash and apricot Middle Eastern stew thing which is actually from one of my other favorite Middle Eastern authors or cookbook authors which is Sabrina Gaya and her book particularly Persiana which is her first book is fantastic so if you like the Ottolenghi style Middle Eastern style food check out Sabrina's work she's British she ran a really popular supper club in her kitchen in her lounge in London which is really popular I wanted to do it here but lots of food safety laws in Australia it turns out yes I wanted to do one here as well and got put off by all the legislation it makes it difficult but anyway um, I haven't heard of her so I'll go and check that out that look that sounds great and um, so finally where can people find you if they want more information about all the different things you do <laughs> someone said once that I was all over the place and they meant that in a <laughs> I don't think they meant an emotional sense they meant it all over the different platforms and things they see me all over the place which is good so you can find me on instagram steph underscore clark underscore underscore probably most active though on linkedin so we'll chuck a link into the show notes but it's steph hyphen clark and clark has got an e on the end also find me on all good podcast players, Steph's Business Bookshelf or search for Steph Clark. Either one will will find me and you can subscribe there. And your website? StephClark.com or Steph'sBusinessBookshelf.com depending on what you're looking for. So if you're looking for facilitation, StephClark.com. Otherwise, it's the, the podcast.
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. It's been great to have a chat and get to know you a little bit more. So for our listeners, Steph and I haven't met, but we've got quite a few mutual friends and we're in a WhatsApp group together. So I feel like I know you, even though we haven't actually done the face-to-face yet. It was like reconnecting. It was was good. (laughs) I know. It was great. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.